following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Now, if you would, please, you can take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Daniel. As we will pick up tonight where we left off in our study of this book, we've come to the um, 11th chapter of the book of Daniel. And um, I'm going to be reading a fairly lengthy uh, portion of Scripture, picking up with verse 2 of chapter 11. And I will read down through verse 3 of chapter 12. So follow with me as I read. Daniel chapter 11, picking up with verse 2. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. Also, the king of the south shall become strong as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. And at the end of some years they shall join forces, for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand. But she shall be given up with those who brought her, and with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times." But from a branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place, who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them and prevail. And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt, with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold, and he shall continue more years than the king of the north. Also the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. However... His son shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces. And one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. Then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. And the king of the south shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with him, with the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. When he has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. For the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former and shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. Now in those times, many shall rise up against the king of the south. Also violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city And the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. But he who comes against him shall do according to his own will. And no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. He shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do. And he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it. But she shall not stand with him 
or be for him. After this, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many, but a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end. And with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. There shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. But within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. And in his place shall arise a vile person, to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. With the force of a flood they shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. And after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. He shall enter peaceably, even into the richest places of the province. And he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches. And he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. Yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. Both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table, but it shall not prosper, for the end will still be at the appointed time. While returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. At the appointed time, he shall return and go toward the south. But it shall not be like the former or the latter, for ships from Cyprus shall come against him. Therefore he shall be grieved and return in rage against the holy covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant. And forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation." Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And those of the people who understand shall instruct many. Yet for many days they shall fall by sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join with them by intrigue. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them purify them and make them white until the time of the end because it is still for the appointed time. Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished for what has been determined shall be done. He shall regard neither the god of his fathers nor the desire of women nor regard any god for he shall exalt himself above them all. And in their place he shall honor a God of fortresses, and a God which his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign God, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory. And he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him 
like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships. And he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. At that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Let's pray. Our Father, as we uh, launch out into a consideration of this chapter, we pray you would help us to think uh, clearly, uh, Lord, to work hard at understanding, and we pray that you would give us insight, that we might see the relevance of these things to our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we return to our study of the book of Daniel, we've come now to uh, this revelation that was given to Daniel in chapter 11. And I do remind you that this was very dramatically introduced back in chapter 10, which we looked at last time. You may remember uh, I pointed out that the entirety of chapter 10 up through verse 1 of chapter 11 was a, quote, mere introduction for the rest that follows here. In chapter 11, verse 2, to the end of the chapter and really to the end of the book. And you remember in chapter 11, Daniel was fasting and praying for three full weeks. And at the end of that time, he is visited by an angelic messenger. At the appearance, you remember, of this majestic figure, Daniel is devastated and shaken to the core of his being. And, and in the initial words of this messenger, he's describing these mysterious spiritual conflicts between these angelic beings that had hindered him arriving sooner with his message and so on. And, and we're given a, 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 a behind-the-scenes glimpse of spiritual forces and influences that are operative in the events of history and the importance of persevering prayer in this spiritual warfare. But now as we take up with chapter 11, verse 2, to the end of chapter 11, and really up to verse 3 of chapter 12, the actual message is being delivered concerning important events that are to follow in world history, particularly such as have a direct bearing on the people of God. Now many, it seems, um, consider, and I, and I have to be honest, as I was thinking of preaching through the rest of the book of Daniel, chapter 11 was the one that I kept thinking about. Oh, we've got to get the chapter. We're going to have to go through chapter 11. I can't go through chapter 10 and skip chapter 11, right? And indeed, it, it, many consider the 11th chapter to be the most difficult chapter in the whole book. 
In fact, uh, the conservative commentator Leupold makes this comment. He says, this chapter might be treated in Bible classes. We do not see how it could be used for a sermon or sermons. Well, I, I agree that this chapter can be difficult. If you're not careful, uh, you can easily get bogged down and lost in the details. But I don't agree that it should not be used for a sermon or for sermons. In fact, I think Leupold would have done well to take to heart the implications of something else that he said when commenting on this chapter. He points out that this chapter is indeed preceded by an entire chapter of introduction, chapter uh, 10, to prepare the way for it. And therefore, it must be of unusual importance, he says. And there, I agree with him. If this chapter, chapter 11, has the most impressive introduction of any other chapter in the book, perhaps any other chapter in the Bible, then certainly we should draw the conclusion, as another commentator has put it, that what such a weighty introduction introduces must be weighty material indeed, and therefore ought to be preached. And this is what I intend to do. But again, my approach, as it's been with all of these apocalyptic passages in the last half of the book of Daniel, is to try not to get too bogged down with every little detail. Our great concern is with the message and the lessons that are here for us. So my method um, will be to give an overview of the content of the chapter and to draw out some of the practical lessons and the relevance of all of this for you and me. Now, much of the content here is parallel to what was already given in the vision back in chapter 8. You may remember the vision of the various world empires that would arise after the Babylonian Empire and, and lesser kingdoms that would splinter off from them and follow. And also the vision we were given there of that unusually fierce king who would rise up to persecute God's people, Antiochus Epiphanes, and whom we learned about when we considered that chapter. But there are differences between uh, chapter 8 and chapter 11, some major differences, and the differences are these. First, here we're given much more detail concerning the ups and downs, victories and defeats, schemes and conspiracies that will characterize this entire period of history. Secondly, instead of kingdoms and kings being depicted in the form of wild beasts or, or horns, this history is given in a much more straightforward manner. And then thirdly, this vision, as I hope to show you, after mentioning the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, reaches beyond him to another figure, another person like Antiochus and prefigured by Antiochus, but even more evil, who will rise up sometime prior to the final judgment and the resurrection of the dead mentioned at the beginning of chapter 12, a person, I believe, who corresponds to the little horn back in Daniel chapter 7, if you want to go back and listen to those messages. Now, the content of this chapter can be divided up under the following headings. First, we have prophecy concerning Persia and Greece, verses 2 to 4. Then we have prophecy concerning ongoing conflicts between the north and the south after the Greek empire breaks apart and splinters into various kingdoms, verses 5 to 20. That's as far as we're going to get this evening. And then coming back next time, God willing, this will culminate thirdly in the emergence of Antiochus Epiphanes, verses 21 to 35. Now, now up to that point, almost every scholar and every commentator is agreed. But then I hope to also show us next time that this, 
this figure merges into and bleeds into the description of another person like Antiochus and prefigured by him and even more evil than him who will arise sometime before the final judgment at the end of time, verses 36 to 45. So as we begin to look at the content of this chapter, first we have prophecy concerning Persia and Greece. And this covers the period from around 536 uh, to 323 B.C. And all of you kids, you understand that when you're before Christ, the number, you, you're counting backwards, right? So you have 536 as you move forward to 323 B.C. Now, when Daniel was given this vision, you may remember the Babylonian Empire had already fallen to the Persians. Indeed, chapter 10, verse 1 tells us that this, this vision was given to him during the third year of the reign of Cyrus, king of Persia. So picking up now with verse 2 of chapter 11, the angelic messenger says to Daniel, And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. And by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Well, this is indeed what happened. Uh, the fourth king to arise, the fourth king mentioned here, the fourth king of Persia, was in fact the great king Xerxes. And he was the richest of all of the kings of Persia. And all of it, he was richer than all of his predecessors. And he used his wealth to build a very large and powerful army. And just as predicted in the prophecy, Xerxes went to war with Greece. Some of you may know the history. It's quite interesting history. There's, uh, there's, there's uh, Greek historians, Persian historians writing about these things. And you can read all about it. You can, I can point you to some good books you can read about the battles, the war between the Persian and the Greeks. And even though Xerxes had a tremendous advantage in numbers, he was eventually smashed by the Greeks. And he went limping back to Persia. And this was followed by the ascendancy of Alexander the Great. We have reference to a, a mighty king that shall rise. Verse 3, Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. But as we know, Alexander died in Babylon in the prime of his life at the age of 32. None of his sons inherited his empire, as hinted at here in verse 4. It says uh, that his kingdom was divided, but not among his posterity. It was rooted up, and it was divided among others, and it eventually settled into various sections. And this brings us now to verse 5. And in verses 5 to 20, we have secondly, prophecy concerning wars and conflicts between kings in the north and kings in the south. Sometimes when you're reading this, you may think it's just talking about one king in the north and one king in the south because it refers to the king of the north, then the king of the south does this, then after that, the king of the north does this, and the king of the south does this. But it's really a, a whole series of kings of the north and kings of the south, two dynasties uh, that ruled those regions. We're going we're to see in a moment. And you notice north and south are mentioned over and over in this section. Verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, verse 11, verse 13, verse 14, verse 15. In fact, someone has referred to this as the wars of northern and southern aggression. Uh, but let me just pause for a moment. There's something I want us to see before we go any further. We have these references to kings in the north and kings in the south. North and south 
with reference to what? Are we talking about kings in the, on the North Pole and kings in the South Pole? Or uh, maybe we're talking about kings from Maine and kings from Florida? Or uh, maybe or perhaps it's kings in the Northern Hemisphere, kings in the Southern Hemisphere. You see, south of what? North of what? Well, the answer is obvious and clear in the context, isn't it? It's south and north of the people of God. God's covenant community, which under the old covenant lived in one geographical area. We're going, and during the reign of Cyrus, you remember they returned to that area. They would be planted in that area still until the time of Christ. And so we have God's covenant community living in that geographical area, the land of Israel, with Jerusalem as its capital. So these references to north and south are speaking of kings after the splintering of the Greek empire, is speaking of kings and regions immediately north and south of Israel. Now, why is that? Why is that? I mean, why aren't we given a prophecy about what would happen at China, in China in this period of history? Or Peru? Or on the British Isles? Why is that? Well, it's not that those places are unimportant. It's, it's not that they, uh, they, they did not have any important cultural achievements or that their history doesn't matter at all. No, these prophecies focus where they do because the Bible is not merely a history book. It's not merely a book of random prophecies about everything that will ever happen in every place. No, it is a book that focuses on redemptive history or salvation history, on God's great plan of salvation and the Savior who was promised to come through Abraham's seed, which uh, that promise that would be preserved in the calling out of this nation through whom the Christ would eventually come into the world, the nation of Israel. And at that time in history, Israel was the center of the universe. Everything else was north and south of there, or east and west of there, at least from God's perspective. Israel is the center of the universe. God's chief and greatest concern was his people. And everything else that happens in the world finds its reference point there. And that continues to be the case. This world exists for Jesus Christ. And all that is happening in the world finds its real meaning only as it relates to his kingdom and to the interest of those who will or those who do now belong to him. The church is the peculiar focus of God's love and concern. What's happening with Christ's church in the world? Every local expression of it, that's the most important thing that's happening in the world right now. More important than what's going on in Washington or Beijing or Moscow. All of those things are just peripheral. They're just kind of the, the background, the setting, the secondary. The church is what really matters, and that applies to every individual member of it, my friend. The, it applies to every believer. It applies to you if you belong to Christ. In a very special and unique manner, God cares about you, and he loves you, and he knows you, and he cares about everything that is happening in your life. As Jesus said, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered by him. Do not fear, therefore. 
you are of more value than many sparrows. And he may have just as well said, you're of more value than all the kings of the north and all the kings of the south and all the kings of the east and all the kings of the west. You are more value to God. In the language of our confession of faith, chapter 5, paragraph 7, the providence of God does in general reach to all creatures. But in a special way, it takes care of his church and disposes all things to its good. Now, of course, God knows all things. Uh, He knows everything that will happen to everybody throughout the course of history, and he cares about everything that he has made. But the point is that God has a special care and gives special attention to his people. He knows your sorrows. He knows about those pressures and tensions that you face at work or from unbelievers in your family. He knows your trials, the persecutions, the difficulties that you're up against. He sees and he cares about you, and you can trust even as, as God is communicating to his people through Daniel's prophecy, you can trust that he's bringing to pass his purposes for the ultimate good of all those who belong to him. As one of his people, you are the apple of his eye. You are more important to him than all of the great ones of the earth, the kings of the north, south, east, west, and everything in between. More important to him than all those so-called important people that you hear about on the news, those who are celebrated and and applauded by uh, this present evil world. With the psalmist, you can say, I am poor and needy, but the Lord thinks upon me. And so we have these kings from the north and the south, the north and south of God's people. Let's look now at what we're told. Now, Now, here's where we could easily get lost and bogged down. I imagine you were getting lost even as I was reading this, weren't you? Perhaps you're like, whoa, your head's spinning as we, and in the north, and then this, and then the guy in the south, and came from the north. Uh, There's so much detail here. It covers many, many years, and some of it's a bit cryptic, but let me just give a, a very quick overview of the history that's described here. Now, remember, it wasn't history yet when Daniel was given this vision. But Daniel is being told what will happen before it ever happened. And these things did indeed happen, just like God's messenger said they would. And by the way, it's for that very reason that liberal scholars refuse to accept that Daniel actually wrote this. This couldn't have been written during the third year of the reign of Cyrus, they say. Even liberal scholars agree that what we have here is an amazingly accurate description of what actually occurred in history. But then they argue that therefore, because it's so accurate, this must have been written sometime later. Sometime after these events occurred, not before, by someone pretending to be Daniel. Well, I can see how this presents a problem for men who arrogantly refuse to believe in the divine inspiration of Scripture, but it's no problem for those of us who do. Now, as we look at this, I'm going to move quickly. I can't dwell on the details. You wouldn't remember them all if I did, uh, especially some of you. Some of, there's some of you here that don't really like history very much. Some of us love history. You know, I, I, could, I could spend days and weeks tracing out all of these things and find pleasure in doing so, but I'm not going to do that to you. Um, I doubt it would be very profitable for me to do that. But, I, but let me just give you a taste. And, and if you want to look into this more, there's some very good commentaries that trace all of this out 
in great detail. But let me just give you a taste of what we have in verses 5 to 20. After describing the breakup of the Greek empire at the death of Alexander, starting in verse 5, here is what we have. We have the king of the south becoming strong. And this is referring to Egypt. It's actually Egypt is mentioned later. And the king was Ptolemy. Ptolemy. Or you may hear him referred to as Ptolemy. The original king of the north was Seleucus. So we have this period of Ptolemaic dominance with the Ptolemies in Egypt and the Seleucids in the north in Syria. At the end of some years, verse 6, that is later in these dynasties, a marriage alliance was attempted between the king of the north and the daughter of the king of the south. And that, in fact, took place 35 years after the death of Seleucus. Berenice, daughter of Ptolemy Philadelphus of the south, was taken to be the wife of Antiochus II in the north. Now, don't be confused when I mention all these Antiochuses, okay? There's a lot of them. We hadn't got to the, the big guy yet, okay? Antiochus Epiphanes. But this is Antiochus uh, the second in the north. Uh, so there was this marriage that was performed, but this failed to have the desired effect of bringing the two kings kingdoms back together. Eventually, she, her husband, and her child were murdered. But in verse 7, we read, From the branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them and prevail. And this was her brother, the next king of Egypt, known as Ptolemy III. He fought with the north. He put to death those who had murdered his sister. Verse 8, the success of his southern kingdom it, uh, was, was, was pretty impressive. It was great. As verse 8 says, uh, And he shall carry the God, their gods captive to Egypt with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold, and he shall continue more years than the king of the north. Then verse 9, Also the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south but shall return to his own land. And that indeed is what happened. Seleucus II in 240 B.C. marched against Ptolemy III in the south and then returned to his own land. Verse 10, Seleucus II's sons kept on assaulting the king of the north. The king of the south, who is now Ptolemy IV, won a decisive victory over one of those sons, Antiochus III. Verse 11, that occurred in 217 B.C. at Raphia on the frontier between Palestine and Egypt. Verse 12a, the southern king, Ptolemy IV, was puffed up with pride at his successes and began to inflict even greater defeats on the north. But he will not prevail, verse 12b, for something like 13 years later, Antiochus III made a comeback. Verse 13, and then as you have verses 14 to 17, it goes on to describe the successes of this particular king uh, of the north, Antiochus III. Once more, the north becomes the dominant power, and it looked as if all was lost for the south. Verse 14, in fact, we know historically that Philip of Macedon joined in league with the north, as did some of the Jews. That's cryptically re uh, actually referred to there in verse 14, as it speaks of many shall rise up against the king of the south. Uh, and even some of the Jews referred to in verse 14 as violent men of your people. Verse 15, the north then had a decisive victory against the south. And this occurred at Sidon. And the land of Israel referred to in verse 16 as the glorious land now passed into Seleucid 
control. That is, it was brought under the control of the king of the north, Antiochus III. You keeping up with all this, right? But with all of his successes, there were problems that began to happen. After all of his efforts, he, he still could not completely subdue the south, so he resorted to subtlety and deceit. Verse 17, by betrothing his daughter, who by the way was Cleopatra, to Ptolemy V in order to infuse northern influence into the south. But instead it backfired because Cleopatra was enamored with her Egyptian uh, Ptolemaic husband and she sided with her husband and became decidedly pro-Egyptian, verse 17b, but she shall not stand with him or be for him. didn't work. Next, Antiochus, abandoning his ambitions toward the south, attempted the conquest of various islands in the Mediterranean, verse 18a. The Romans warned him to stay out of Greece, but instead he invaded Greece and he was defeated by the Romans, verse 18b. It was a devastating defeat that ended his territorial ambitions. And after this, he concentrated his attention on the affairs at home. And while he was looting a temple in Elymas in 187 B.C., an incensed mob of local Zeus worshipers did away with him, verse 18. But though Antiochus III was now dead, Rome still wanted its tribute. So Seleucus IV, who's the next northern king mentioned, he sent a revenue agent to seize funds from the temple treasury in Jerusalem. Verse 20. Now the guy's name was Heliodorus, according to 2 Maccabees 3, but Heliodorus, something happened that stopped him from doing it. And, and the, 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 uh, the legend is, or the, the story is, that he was stymied by a vision of terrifying and attacking angels. And so he did not ransack the temple treasury. And also later he actually poisoned, we know this happened, he poisoned Seleucus IV. So verse 20b, Seleucus was destroyed, as the text says, but not in anger or battle. He was poisoned. All right, so there you have a prophetic survey of this entire period that lasted from around 323 to 176 B.C. Now, again, we could go into a lot more detail. Probably wouldn't be profitable. You probably wouldn't remember it anyhow. And all of this history, it can be quite, uh, you know, involved. It can be quite difficult and complicated, but it's amazing how accurate these detailed prophecies are in outlining these conflicts between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids that followed the death of Alexander the Great. Now, beginning in verse 21, uh, the prophecy begins to take up the history of another Seleucid ruler who will come next, and that will bring us to the notorious Antiochus IV, also known as Antiochus Epiphanes, which we'll come back to next time, God willing. We learned about him back in chapter 8. Much more attention is given, a lot more attention is given to this particular man because this is the man who will be a great and notorious persecutor of the Jews. His description, the description of his evil deeds, we also have a description of the resistance of some of God's people to his rule, probably referring to the Maccabeans. It takes up at least 15 verses down to verse 35. And then I also hope to show next time that his description, as I said earlier, bleeds into, and I believe that begins in verse 36. We'll talk about that, and I'll tell you why then. It bleeds into a description of another ruler like him, but even more evil, who will rise up sometime before the resurrection and the final judgment. And this figure has sometimes been described as the Antichrist. And this is what will take us to the end of the chapter. 
But all of that will have to wait. I want to break off now from exposition to application. What lessons can we learn from what we've seen this evening? Is it true, as Leupold said, that we do not see how Daniel 11 could be used for a sermon? Well, I'll let you decide. But I think he's wrong, very wrong. There are a number of things we can take from this for the nourishment of our souls. I remind you what Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16. He said, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Profitable for what? It's not just filler. You know, God doesn't just give us filler. You know, he doesn't say, well, I got to say something here. Someone's going to stick something in here. It doesn't mean anything, but I'll just stick it in here to take up some space. You know, no, he doesn't do that. It's all profitable. Profitable for what? For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And that includes Daniel chapter 11, verses 2 to 20. Those of you who want to be preachers one day, remember that. When you're studying the Bible, sometimes you have to think hard and you got to pray about it. Think, what is there here? And what will motivate you and keep you doing that is that word from Paul that it's all profitable, right? There's something there for us as God's people. And that includes Daniel chapter 11, verses 2 to 20, all right? So first of all, this passage ought to greatly fortify our confidence in the Bible. There's abundant internal and external evidence supporting the 6th century dating of the book of Daniel. We don't even, the Bible claims to be written by Daniel, and we believe the Bible, but I just tell you, there's a lot of support for that. Internal, external evidence, in terms of the language that's used, in terms of external things that are brought to bear upon it, that support the 6th century dating of the book of Daniel. But here is Daniel writing in the 6th century about events that would occur in the 5th, 4th, 3rd, and 2nd centuries B.C. And they all happened exactly as predicted. So here we have history written before it took place. And certainly one of the purposes for which God gave this prophecy to Daniel about all of these events, some of which may seem a bit boring, a bit insignificant, but this was given to Daniel in order to strengthen the faith of God's people in his holy word when these things came to pass. Dear friends, the fulfillment of Bible prophecy is one of the most powerful proofs of the divine inspiration of scripture and the bible is full of fulfilled prophecy just think about the old testament prophecies about the birth the life the death the resurrection of the lord jesus christ some of them very detailed and all of them perfectly fulfilled and again this should encourage us it should strengthen our trust in god's word if these pro and think about this if these prophecies at every point proved to be true. Shouldn't you have confidence in the Bible when it speaks to you about other things? It speaks to you about creation. And it tells you that the world didn't just evolve from nothing. That God created the world and all that is in it. It tells you about God himself who he is, what he is like. It tells you about yourself. Who made you, what you are made to be. And it tells you that you're a sinner who has broken God's law. 
and are under the curse, that by nature you're in bondage to the condemning and enslaving power of sin that will damn you to hell in the end, and that you can never save yourself by anything that you do. But it also tells you that God in his grace has provided a savior for sinners in Jesus Christ, and that he came to save sinners by his sinless life and atoning death on the cross. And it tells you that this Christ and the salvation that he has accomplished are sincerely and freely offered to you by God as a free gift to be received by faith. And it promises that if you will receive and believe upon Jesus Christ, God will have mercy upon you and he will save you. It says, whoever believes in him shall not perish. This is what God's word says. And his word can be trusted. Do you believe him? It also tells you how by his grace you are to live, to bring glory to him and good to yourself in your personal life, in your family life, in the workplace. And listen, everything God says is absolutely trustworthy. And let me remind you that just as the prophecies of this chapter were all perfectly fulfilled, and just as the prophecies concerning the first coming of Christ were all perfectly fulfilled, also all of the prophecies about his second coming will certainly be fulfilled as well. Listen, the day is coming. It is coming when Christ will indeed return and he will judge the world and bless his people just exactly as God said it would happen. Everything that God tells us in his word about everything and anything to which it speaks can be confidently trusted. Just think about how blessed we are to be living in a place where Bibles are readily available and easy to have. And think about how foolish to ignore or to neglect such a book as this, God's holy word, and how even more foolish it is to doubt it or to disbelieve it. I'm afraid there may be some of you here tonight, and you have a Bible, but you rarely read your Bible. You'll read all kinds of other stuff. You'll read perhaps all kinds of lies or you read all kinds of silly stuff but while ignoring the one book that is absolutely true in everything that it says because it comes from God. And if that's you, be exhorted this evening to neglect your Bible no longer and to doubt it no longer. And brothers and sisters, fellow believers this evening, it's time God's people and God's church quit apologizing for the Bible. It's time we stand up without embarrassment and proclaim to people around us what this Bible says and what it teaches, all of it, even the parts that people don't like or find hard to believe and ridicule. It's time that I believe that we get rid of pastors who refuse to do that because the fact is they don't believe the Bible either. And more concerned about pleasing men than God. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to apologize for the Bible. Don't be ashamed to say, I believe the Bible to be what it claims to be, the Word of God. Listen, the Bible can defend itself. When it's truly proclaimed, it, it will defend itself. As Spurgeon said, it's like a lion. And the best way to defend a lion is simply to let it out of its cage. And then the second lesson from our passage this evening. Here we see the futility and instability of earthly kingdoms and pursuits. 
the folly, the turmoil, the vanity of it all. Doesn't that just leap out at us from these pages? From Xerxes to Seleucus IV, we have this ongoing record of victories and disasters, gains and losses, schemes and conspiracies, a never-ending confusion of wars and political upheavals. And God doesn't just want us to have the record of this. He wants us to see the futility of it all. This comes out over and over in the text. It's a long tale of frustration, frustrated desires and ambitions and futility. Let me just help you see that again. Verse 4, and when he has arisen, he's arisen now, he's in power now, his kingdom shall be broken up. Verse 6b, but she shall not retain the power of her authority. Verse 9, but he shall return to his own land. Verse 11b, the king of the north shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given over to the hand of his enemy. Verse 12b, but he will not prevail. At the end of verse 14, but they shall fall. At the end of verse 17, and he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy them, uh, destroy it, but she shall not stand or be with him. Verse 18b, but he shall turn back on him. Verse 19b, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. Verse 20b, but within a few days he shall be destroyed. Wow, do you see it? Do you feel it? The vanity, the folly of everything the peoples and the kingdoms of this world are devoted to. The idols of ambition, power, fame, pleasure, possessions that men and nations and rulers live for and pursue. It is nothing but an exercise of frustration and futility. God wants us to see this. He wants us to feel the weight of this. Quoting from Ian Duguid, he speaks of, quote, what he calls the profound perspective on history that we're given in this passage. He says, on one level, it is the continued story of wars and rumors of wars as one human ruler and empire after another seeks to gain power by cunning or force. Yet, though the tide in the affairs of men comes in and goes out, in the end, it accomplishes precisely nothing. The balance of power in earthly politics may shift, but it never comes to a permanent rest. We see that even on the political landscape in our own country. You know, one year it's the Democrats, next year it's the Republicans, right? But where does it ever end up getting? Nowhere, right? In terms of, of lasting, it, it's just back and forth, back and forth. And that's the way history is. It's always been that way. So he goes on. The balance of power in earthly politics may shift, but it never comes to a permanent rest. On the one hand, therefore, Daniel 11 shows us the fallen world pursuing the wind, and it finds it elusive. What do power in politics gain for all their toil? And I would add, not only what do power in politics gain for all their toil, but what do women and men gain for all their toil? in their pursuits of the idols of this world? And the answer is frustration. Futility. The wise man said it well in the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, all is vanity 
What profit has a man for all of his labor in which he toils under the sun? And, and under the sun speaks in terms of looking at the world just from an earthly perspective, apart from God. Life lived apart from God. Life lived unreconciled to God by faith in his son, without reference to the glory and the enjoyment of him as our chief end and divorce from an eternal perspective. Such a life will always in the end prove to be a life of futility that will end in eternal damnation in a place called hell. My dear friend, do you realize that? What are you living for? Young people, what are, what are you pursuing? What, what are you living for in life? Do you see that without Christ, without Christ, your life has no real ultimate lasting meaning? Do you see that the things of this world will never truly satisfy you? They will never produce what you're seeking for from them. It's like a cat chasing his tail. That's what, what this whole chapter is like a cat chasing his tail, tail. Around and around and around and around and around it goes. Always pursuing, but never attaining. But my friend, you were created for better things. To know God. To enjoy Him. To know His love. His forgiving grace. Through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. And to find true meaning and joy in life by serving him, not setting your hopes on the things of this sin-cursed world, but on the glory and the perfection of the world to come. That will not be futility. It will last forever. <laughs> and then thirdly and finally this evening, in this passage, we are reminded that history is the outworking of God's plan and purposes. God could reveal to Daniel what will happen because it all happens according to his providence. It's all part of his plan. He's not taken by surprise by world events. It's all the outworking of his eternal decree and his judgments upon the earth, which have as their end. In this case, God is preparing the world here for the coming of the Christ. And they, all, of, all of these these ups and downs of history are all have as their end the final salvation of God's people, the glory of his son, the glory of his name. And that should be a great comfort to God's people. Quoting Dale Ralph Davis, how often God's people worldwide must feel they are caught in the gears of vicious regimes and that the corpulent heavyweights of this age simply mash them at will. But our text teaches us that our Lord brings judgment not only at the climax of history, but also within history as he injects futility into the, desi the designs of self-exalting, saint-ignoring rulers of this world so that their schemes all end in shambles. Listen, brothers and sisters, as we look at the world around us, it can almost seem like the whole world's falling apart. There's not a lot of good news in the world today. In Europe, Asia... Russia, Africa, America. A lot of things that can be very depressing and, and don't look very good. There's not a lot of good news. Things are bad here in our own country. And they may get a lot worse. I'll be surprised if they don't. But remember, God is in control. And he will win in the end. 
It's all part of the outworking of his plan. He is still God, even when it seems that he's nowhere around. It must have seemed that way to the Jews all of those centuries when all this stuff's going on, and there they are. They're kind of in the middle of it all, and all these nations are passing through Israel back and forth, having battles and wars, and, and Israel's just kind of being churned up in it all. There they are, God's people. Where's God in all this? It may have seemed to them that God was nowhere around. But God's still there even when it seems that he's nowhere to be seen he's there and we must trust him this was god's message through daniel to the jews that lived during this period of history and it's his message to us our part is to say faithful to him whatever happens whatever happens even when we can't understand what he's doing stuart Aliot, commenting on this passage says it well i think he writes empires came and went but the Jews counted for nothing. That's the way they were viewed. That's the way we feel sometimes as Christians, isn't it? The same way. He goes on. They were the only people in the world who had the truth about the living God, and yet they were entirely overlooked. To the world, they were of no measurable significance. They had plenty of trouble, perplexity, and persecution. Often their hearts were filled with fear. As far as the history books were concerned, during that entire period, their God was nowhere to be seen. But even then, events were proceeding exactly as predicted because exactly as God had planned, both for them and for the world. You see, God was at work behind the scenes, directing the world's affairs, even in those dark days, all of which culminated ultimately in the coming of Christ through that people in the gospel through Christ and his people going out to the nations and God is still accomplishing his purpose today. And brothers and sisters, that's true today. Be encouraged. There may be wars. There may be rumors of wars. Political and cultural rulers plot their godless schemes. Apostasy may abound. Much of modern so-called Christianity in America may be nothing more than self-help humanism given a kind of a, a religious twist to it. But whatever happens, however bad it gets, if revival tarries, never forget, God is in control. And his purposes will not fail. Everything is moving right on schedule. And our part is to be true to him no matter what. And we know that everything was moving then right on schedule, don't we? In part because of what we've come to observe tonight, the Lord's Supper. That, remember what Scripture says? In the fullness of time, Christ came, born of a virgin. What's that mean, the fullness of time? It means at that very time and moment that God had planned, right at the right time, Christ came. And he accomplished our redemption, and we come together as God's people, as those who have been the beneficiaries of that. And we celebrate and we observe tonight what Christ has accomplished for us by his death upon the cross. His resurrection, seated now at the right hand of the Father, and he is with us tonight in the midst of his people by his Holy Spirit. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.